Welcome to Standout Life, a podcast dedicated to living boldly amongst the busyness. My name's Ali Hill, and as a psychologist, it's been my profession to connect with people's stories. And when you think about it, it's the conversations that we have with ourselves and with others that truly shape us. It's through exploring these stories that we start to find a pathway around the magnificent and the remarkable question. So what does it actually take to live a standout life? Throughout this podcast, I sit down with influential women and a few good men and we chat about how they live a life of purpose while still making progress. We dig into their stories, both the successes and the struggles, and in doing so, we get some amazing insights into what it takes to live big and ultimately how they've found the wins in this crazy, busy world. So let's dive deep into what it takes to live a standout life. Many young girls have a fascination with ponies at some point in their childhood, but not many take that fascination and turn it into an obsession and then turn it into a career, a career that would see them competing on the international stage at the Olympics. But today's guest went down that path, not without one of the biggest hurdles that life can actually throw at you. At the age of 21 in 2013, Emma Booth was involved in a traumatic head-on collision with a truck that resulted in a whole gamut of severe injuries, including bleeding on the brain, punctured lung, severe abdominal injuries, and the toughest one of all, which was damage to her spinal cord, which left her in a wheelchair, knowing that she will be unable to walk for the rest of her life. Emma found refuge back in her connection with her horse and went on to compete in the 2016 Rio Paralympic Games, only three years after her accident. Emma talks through her road to recovery, her connection with her horse, and jolts us all into realising that whilst life can throw anything at you, you've got to take the chances in front of you. Now look, inspiration is a word that gets thrown around, but it's something that I absolutely felt at the end of this conversation. So sit back and enjoy the connection and the conversation with Emma Booth. Emma, welcome to the studio. Great to have you here. Yeah, it's great to be here. Thank you for having me. Look, I want to start by asking you a question. Horses have obviously become a big part of your life. Uh, And I I read somewhere that that you've always loved animals. You've always been around, even as a young kid. Um, But really only kind of connected with, with horses when I think around nine, 10, 11. Yeah, just T- turned 11. Just turned 11. <laughs> yeah. Can you describe that moment, that first time that you got onto the back of a horse and, and went for a ride? What was that like? Um, it was, I mean, it was pretty incredible. Like I was, I just turned 11, as I said, and um, I had wanted to ride ever since I was tiny though. Like horses were just something that I was drawn to. And, um, do you know what that was? I don't, I honestly, I don't know what it was. It was just something about them. Um, you know, I'm an absolute animal lover, all animals. I'm, I'm a real animal person, dogs, um, everything, but yeah, there was just something about horses and I had always wanted to ride, but, um, I didn't, my family weren't horsey. So, um, getting into it was a little bit difficult, but, um, yeah, I remember like even as a little kid, I had one of those toy, um, horses, like one of the stick horses and I would just run around the house on my stick pony, like, you know, all day, every day. (laughs) But, um, yeah, I was actually 11 when I, when I got into riding, I was lucky enough to win a pony, um, through a competition that the saddle club ran. I don't know if you know the saddle club. I've definitely heard, heard of, of it. Yeah. 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 So, um, that's how it, it started. And, and what was the competition? It was, um, they were just literally running a competition to win a pony for 12 months and everything in that 12 months they covered, um, the cost of. So it was an Australian wide competition. Um, I think over 30,000 kids or something entered and I was lucky enough to, to actually win. So that, um, what was that like for an 11 year old? Yeah, Yeah, I, I still think it, um, the enormity of it didn't really sink in or probably still hasn't even, you know, like how huge a deal that was. Um, you know, I think mum and dad probably thought 
when I was younger and saying, oh, I want to ride ponies or I want to have a pony, that it was just one of those phases that a lot of little girls go through, yeah, like yeah. I want the pony. Yeah, my daughter's seven and, yeah, there's, there's moments where she yeah. goes, yeah, let's have a pony. I'm yeah. like, yeah, let's get a puppy. Like, <laughs> <laughs> and I think that's what mum and dad did. They sort of just kept being like, no, no, you know, maybe when you're older. Um, but, yeah, when I was 11 and won this pony, they sort of couldn't um, deny it anymore and they realised that it wasn't just a phase. Like I actually had a passion um, for horses and for riding. And um, what, how, how, did they, when, how did they respond when you kind of went, hey, I've won the competition and we've got a pony for a year? <laughs> I, I think that they initially were probably really excited, um, but I also think that, initially they didn't realize what it was going to lead to they probably just thought oh this is you know really cool this is exciting um she can have a horse for 12 months and then you know whatever yeah Yeah. um and I yeah I definitely don't think they realized that um what it would lead to and yeah (laughs) don't know if they would have been as excited initially if they did know (laughs) but um no they they were excited and yeah, it was. So you won good. the competition and you got the chance to meet this pony. Yes. Do you have a name? Scruffy. Scruffy. Yes. And so what was that meeting like and then getting on to the back of that? Yeah, I mean, I still remember um, when they opened up the stable door and they walked out this sparkling white pony um, and his name's not Scruffy for any reason. He's usually filthy. Like he's just one of those grotty little ponies that loves rolling in the dirt. Um, But on this particular day, they had him all scrubbed up and yeah, he was just looking immaculate. And I remember giving him an apple and um, yeah, it was just this automatic straight away. Like I just was in love. Like that was, that was the feeling. And um, going for the ride, my first ride was nothing but exciting. Um, you know, I had that sort of adrenaline going. I was, I don't know, you feel your heart pumping and I, again, just absolutely loved it. Um, yeah, I, I can still, I can still remember it so clearly that day. Um, but yeah, I don't know, there was just something about it that, as I said, from that moment on, it was like I was, addicted I was hooked and um yeah there was no no turning back really (laughs) was there a connection with with Scruffy yeah there was definitely um you know he was a really special pony and he taught me a lot um in the 12 months that I had him um you know and at the end of the 12 months when I had to give him back it was really really difficult and sad but at the same time I'd sort of gotten to the point where I'd almost outgrew him a little bit and it was probably time to move on to my next pony. Uh, But, you know, I always kept track of where he was and what he was doing and I actually um, bought him back a couple of years ago. So he's now retired at my property in, um, on the Mornington Peninsula. So So part of the family still. Yeah, he is. So he's, um, just living out his life, getting fat and being happy. So, um, it's nice. It's nice having him, having him at my place. It's, It's sweet. So, yeah. So when you were riding Scruffy and I guess as an 11 year old kid, who's just starting to experience what this is like, um, and riding around on horses and obviously having that that connection and and you mentioned the word addicted, like mm. this was the thing that yeah. you probably woke up thinking about, went to bed thinking yeah. about. <laughs> Did you have thoughts of of, you know, that going into competition in at that time, at the age of eleven? Yeah, uh, I actually competed in my first competition, obviously just a low level, like, you know, beginner sort of stuff competition when I um, had only been riding for four months. Um, and yeah, that was probably one of the most exciting competitions I've been to. Um, you know, you're learning everything. It's not like, unlike anything you've done before, but, um, I think I was actually, (laughs) I used to do eventing, which is a three phase, um, event, dressage, show jumping and cross country. Um, and cross countries where you do um, jumping over the big logs and things in the field, in you know, in the paddock. And um, I was actually eliminated <laughs> in my first competition at about jump four or five because Scruffy just thought 
no, I don't have to do this. And I was so nervous that I wasn't forcing him to. <laughs> so, um, yeah, I, I remember I was devastated and all I wanted to do was just straight away go home and work on it and get better and come out and give it another go. Um, so, again, that side of competition, um, I was hooked immediately and I continued competing Scruffy while I had him and then when I got my next um, horse started you know competing with her and then I was lucky enough to get a, a more experienced um, thoroughbred that uh, off a family friend and yeah I, I slowly moved up the levels of eventing with him until we were at a pretty a pretty high level of competition um, and yeah I just continued doing that all through high school um, and after so it was just yeah something that I loved I love something about competing something about um, you know, the work that you have to put in to, to try and pull off the perfect competition or the perfect event. Um, and it's, yeah, it's the same thing. It's that addictive something about it that you just keep getting drawn back to and wanting that to do more. competitive nature part of who you are? Do you think that? It, yeah, that? definitely. I mean, I've always been really competitive. Um, even, you know, things in school, sports at school, um, even if I maybe thought, oh, you know, I don't really care that much. Once you got to it, I would always give it my absolute 100% because I was that competitive that I just wanted to do as best I could or, um, you know, try and win at whatever it was. So, yeah, I'm definitely competitive. <laughs> was there ever thoughts at that, uh, you know, 11-year-old, 12-year-old self of actually competing for your country? Uh, definitely. I mean, I had, you know, little posters up in my room. I remember as an 11 year old riding Scruffy competing with him of, you know, riders that had been to the Olympics and sort of idols, I guess. Um, and, you know, obviously that was something that I'd maybe dreamed about doing. Like I'd thought that that would be amazing, but, you know, again, as much as I wanted to, like whether it was just a dream and, you know, thinking that it probably wasn't going to be a reality, but um, there were definitely, definitely thoughts there, even from an 11-year-old. <laughs> so that competitive nature, having found the sport that you're kind of passionate and, as you say, finding whatever it is, that pinnacle and those role model people, you know, and the prime being the those who have competed at the Olympics for yeah. their country um, on that kind of pathway... And then, you know, three years ago in 2013, you went through what can only be described as a, you know, fairly horrific traumatic car accident. Yeah. That, um, yeah, that really changed the course of your life. Didn't yeah, it? Can definitely. you describe what going through that was? Yeah, so, I mean, as you said, it was a pretty horrific experience. Um, I was travelling home from a horse competition with a friend. Um, we were coming back from Albury and we were involved in a car accident that um, involving a truck. The truck had jackknifed coming around a corner um, onto our side of the road and we had a head-on. And, yeah, I mean, I still remember a lot about it. I remember um, it was at night, it was about eight o'clock at night, so it was dark. Um, the roads were a little bit wet and um, I just remember seeing the truck's headlights coming towards us. Um, I think my friend was driving, I was in the passenger seat and she sort of went to sort of swerve to the left a little bit to avoid it, but it was a small road and just unavoidable. Mm. So, Were there any thoughts going through your head at that time? Yeah, it's funny because I actually remember just sitting there thinking, you know, I was seeing these trucks' headlights coming towards us and just thinking, okay, this is happening, you know, um, and it was sort of almost that weird sense of calm that just came over me and I know that that sounds crazy but that's, yeah, I just remember thinking that this is happening, nothing you can do um, and, yeah, I was knocked unconscious um, at that point and then, yeah, I just remember waking up in the car um, after after the accident and, you know, it was pretty chaotic. I mean, my friend was next to me and she was in a bit of a panic and, um, you know, saying lots of different things. We had a dog in the back seat and she was barking like crazy. Um, 
and we were obviously towing a horse float behind our car and um, one of the horses was just scrambling in the back of the float and shaking the whole car. So I remember feeling the whole car just being shook um, and it was, yeah, that awful feeling of knowing that they weren't probably in the float and that there was nothing I could do to help. Um, but, yeah, it was an hour before we were um, actually removed from the car, before the ambulance got there. That must have felt like an eternity. Yeah, it, it definitely did. Um, you know, and there's so many thoughts going through your head as well, like, you know, what's happened and is this real and all mm. that sort of thing. But, um, you know, considering the amount of injuries that I sustained, you know, I, I was in pain, but I think that your body's pretty incredible in your brain as well. Um, it's like it sort of shuts off, sh- shuts you off from that pain. Um, I remember the most painful bit about it was actually being pulled from the car and being um, taken onto the stretcher. And for some reason that was just the most excruciating pain. But then again, once I was actually on the stretcher and they gave me some more drugs, it was like, okay, yeah. <laughs> bearable. Um And, yeah, I was taken straight to hospital and had um, life-saving surgery as soon as I got there to stop internal bleeding. Um, But, you know, I had a huge amount of injuries, but the most severe, I guess, was um, to my spine and my spinal cord, um, which is what has left me as a paraplegic in a wheelchair. Um, And, yeah, often people sort of ask what it was like being told that I wasn't going to walk again. Um... And I always find that a hard thing to sort of describe because it's not as though I had no idea and someone just all of a sudden came in and said this to me. Do you know what I mean? Like I, it's like I sort of already knew, but it was just them maybe clarifying it. Um, You know, I said to my nurse, am I going to be able to walk again? And she said, look, it's looking like you're probably not going to be able to. Um, You've suffered some severe damage to your spinal cord and, you know. um, But, yeah, it was just more a gradual thing that I processed, like gradually taking that information in and working through it. Um, Yeah, imagine you've got some tune into what's going on yeah. in your body, even with multiple yeah, injuries. Yeah, in exactly. Areas. Like I think I sort of, as I said, had some idea, um, like I was told later on that uh, I actually kept saying to the people in the ambulance, um, to the paramedics, that I couldn't feel my legs. And apparently I kept telling them that I couldn't feel my legs, but I don't remember actually saying that at all. Um, But, yeah, obviously your subconscious takes that in and, yeah, as I said, it's like you kind of already know that it's pretty pretty bad. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So you were in hospital for how long? Uh, Just under four months in total, yeah. So um, I was taken from the Royal Melbourne and then to um, the Austin and was in ICU for um, over 10 days, um, which was probably the hardest bit. Like, ICU was pretty intense and that's when I was obviously at my weakest and probably in the most amount of pain. Um, But, you know, my family were there every day as soon as... What was that like for your family? Um, I mean, you know, we've we've spoken about it a, a number of times, but I don't think I'll ever fully understand exactly what they went through. Um, but, I mean, they received the phone call, obviously, um, that I had been involved in an accident. And at that point, all they knew was um, that it looked like there had been some damage to my leg. Um, I had a compound fracture to my left ankle. Um, so that's sort of what they were told um, and they went straight to the hospital and yeah as I said I was in surgery um, to stop internal bleeding and at that point they were waiting in the waiting room for probably six hours um, not knowing whether I was actually going to survive or not you know they just kept being told that it was life-saving this life-saving abdominal surgery and um, but they weren't really given much more information than that so obviously I can imagine it was um, a really horrifying time and you know I remember I think it was my sister saying that every time 
someone opened the door to come into this waiting room, their heart just completely stopped. Um, so yeah, as I said, like we've spoken about it, but I still don't think I would completely understand what it was like for them during that time. And during the time that I was in ICU as well, you know, they would have felt pretty hopeless. I was in a lot of pain a lot of the time. Um, and you know, there's not a lot that they could really do or that they probably felt like they could do to help me. But, um, yeah, as I said, they just them being there was, I think, more help than they probably Which is realized. hard to get your head around, but I can imagine in that yeah. moment is that you would want to do anything. Yeah, like whatever exactly. Whatever it is, but there's nothing other than, as you say, the most powerful thing, you'd just be... Just being there. Being present and yeah. being, um, yeah, throughout those. And I can only imagine then that, that three or four months of recovery and yeah. and redefining what, what life means now and yeah. what life looks like now. How was some of that trajectory for you, I guess, even on a, on a personal kind of getting your head around? Yeah, that? as I said, it was, you know, coming to terms with the fact that I wasn't going to be able to walk again was just a gradual process, um, you know, and I had really good and bad days in hospital. Like some days would just be really shitty and <laughs> you'd just feel like, um, you know, crying or whatever, but... Um, it was, yeah, just a matter of slowly getting your head around it and working through that. Um, and I, I sort of, I think set a goal for myself of, or sorry, it wasn't even a goal at that point. It was just for me knowing that I was going to ride again or that I would want to ride again. Um, so. Why was that pull so strong? Um, I think probably because I knew that I wasn't going to be able to walk again, which meant. So, um, you know, I was limited in so many ways. Um, and I think for me, thinking to myself that I would be able to ride again was, um, I don't know, it must have just been like something that made me feel like everything was going to be okay. Um, and it was something that I could focus on, a positive that I could focus on, I suppose. So, um yeah, I mean, obviously it was something I was doing pretty much every day before my accident and it was something that was so familiar to me. So the idea of getting back in the saddle was a really comforting thought. And yeah, I mean, my first ride back, it was, it was this comforting feeling that was um, absolutely incredible. Like obviously it was six months after my accident when I actually had my first ride and um, for that six months I'd been confined to either being in my wheelchair or being in bed and that was difficult because I was such an active person before my accident you know I if I wasn't riding I was working if I wasn't working I was at uni or going for a run or whatever it was I was doing um so yeah being sort of immobile for that amount of time was really hard and yeah, the first ride, feeling the horse's movement underneath me and, and feeling something that was so familiar to me, as I said before my accident, um, it just gave me this real lift and a real sort of, um, yeah, sense of freedom. I know that sounds really corny, but it sort of was. Like I it can was imagine just, yeah. it would feel like home. Yeah, that's a really good way of putting it actually, yeah. yeah. Coming back to that space and as yeah. you say from a mobility point of view to feel mm. feel movement again yeah in a way that you probably hadn't yeah for a while for that amount of time so it was yeah. that sort of yeah freeing feeling yeah mm. it was nice <laughs> and I've read that during your time in hospital obviously that that draw to I want to get back on a horse is is one thing um but there was a part in your mind where you actually also and I I've I've read that you you looked up um Olympics Paralympics yeah yeah (laughs) so again that was um very early on in hospital like I think that was maybe two or three weeks after my accident um and I'd been given a new iPad um from one of my dad's friends at work and yeah, I just remember being in hospital and obviously you got a lot of time on your hands. So, what um, can I Google? <laughs> yeah, I was just Googling away and, yeah, I remember Googling the Paralympics and saw that the next Paralympics was going to be in Rio and I started Googling, you know, um, equestrian and Paralympics for equestrian, the different classifications, and I sort of started going, oh, I'm probably going to be graded as this, like there's different levels and... 
Um, yeah, so it was that early on that I started thinking about Rio as a possibility, but again, it was probably more just something that I said and not a reality at that point. Um, and it wasn't until I actually had my first ride and thought, you know what, I'm actually okay at this. I feel pretty confident. I feel balanced. I feel good. Um, maybe I can actually give this a real, real go. Um, and yeah, I was just really lucky to be put in touch with the right people that were able to help me and point me in the right direction as to, um, what I had to do to be classified, um, the qualifying events that I had to get to, um, how I could get onto the high performance squad and all that sort of thing. And yeah, just all those steps to, um, to aim for Rio and, um, yeah. Which is phenomenal to go from, you know, three years from the accident to, to yeah. going to Rio. And I want to get to your experience of Rio in a minute. But how much work is involved in that? So six months after you've had your first ride with the horse and going, okay, mm-hmm. maybe. Like, is that then just bullet a gate? Like, we've, we've just got to knuckle in and work. Because I imagine rehab is, there's a lot of work in that side yeah. of what you were going through as well. Yep, definitely. So, I mean, six months after my accident, I was still learning how to do everything again and figuring everything out. So um, riding at that point was still just basics um, and I was learning how to ride again in my own way, um, figure out my own style. Um, Obviously, in um, able-bodied dressage, your leg is a, a really important aid that helps communicate with the horse to get them to... Um, either go forward or you know going from side to side and that sort of thing so of course and now you don't yeah so then (laughs) then not having that yeah as an aid was um really difficult in initially and I did have to learn my own way of figuring it out Um, again I had help from a lot of people who um, had some experience with para riding before, so they gave me some hints and tips, but um, it was a, a long process of just working it out. Um, I use voice commands um, to communicate with the horse now, um, and I'm allowed to ride with two whips, and they're there as sort of a compensating aid for my leg. Uh, but, yeah, it was it was just figuring it all out. Was it hard work? Like, was it? It Yeah, yeah. it was. Um, You know, once I, you know, was really determined on getting to Rio, it was a matter of just riding every day and getting as much practice as I could and getting as good as I could. Um, And then the next step was really finding a horse that was um, suitable and talented enough to get me qualified um, to get on the team for Rio. Um, it's pretty competitive. So, um, you know, even getting a spot on the team was not looking super positive for a while when I didn't have that right horse. Um, but, you know, a lot of things happened. Um, a really good family friend of mine actually um, did a fundraiser for me. He wanted to help raise money for me to be able to purchase a horse um, that would get me to the Paralympics. Um, and Incredible. He, did yeah, that, did he, that surprise you? Oh, definitely. I mean, sorry, it, it didn't surprise me that he would want to do it because he's incredible and um, it didn't surprise me what he wanted to do. He decided he was going to um, ride his bike around Australia. Like you uh, do, right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> like, you know, oh, that's something that everyone wake, wakes afternoon. up and wants to do. Yeah. No, Amazing. and... Um, yeah, we, you know, he started telling us that this was what he wanted to do and he planned everything. He absolutely did everything um, to organise it. And, yeah, we just thought if someone's going to be able to do this, it's going to be him. Like, he's just that type of person. He's obviously, um, you know, quite a fit person. He's done a number of triathlons, marathons, um, Ironman. He's been overseas to do those sorts of things. So, um you know, he he knew a lot about the body and how he can, you know, get it done. So I think he um, he was wanting to get the ride done in 70 days, but um, he outdid himself and had to do it in 68 days. Right. <laughs> Another so, competitive spirit, yeah, really. Yeah, <laughs> very competitive. So, yeah, that in itself was a huge effort, but, um, you know, not only was his support really humbling to me. It was the support of the other people 
who helped him. Like he had a support crew with him the whole time as he travelled around Australia um, in a, a support vehicle. Um, and all those people just, um, you know, gave up their time to go with him. They took time off work to be able to do it, all just um, to help him help me. And, um, you know, it was also the generosity of strangers, of, yeah, people that we'd never met before. Um, as Carter was doing his ride, he, you know, a number of people would see him riding and see the van that they had and people would hear about the story and what he was doing to help me and want to donate, you know. And for me it was just this incredibly eye-opening thing that made me realise how generous people can be to complete strangers like it was it was really um amazing and he he ended up raising more than you know he had um ever anticipated so it was a huge effort not only by him but yeah by everyone that helped him and everyone that donated like it was a real game changer for me um and obviously what impact did that have on your motivation because it's one thing to go okay yes I want to put in the work and I want to go to Rio but it may not happen and there are some days I imagine you're in pretty severe pain I can only yeah imagine what that's like and go well do I really want to yeah how does does something like that impact your motivation yeah that's it's a really good point because you know before Carter did this ride obviously I'd said yeah you know I'll give Rio I'll try and get to Rio but then seeing what he was doing and the effort that he went to to help me, it was like, okay, now there's no doubt about it. Like I'm going to do absolutely everything I can to try and get to Rio. Um, you know, and as I said before, I found my horse. Um, there was a little bit of a period of time there where it was sort of looking like maybe I wasn't going to qualify. Um, and that was difficult as well. And, you know, I've had a number of chats with Glenn Carter about it and before Rio um, and said to him, like, I feel as though if I'm not going to get on the team for Rio, like, then I would have let you down and all this stuff. But he was just 100% supportive and said, you know, I didn't do this just so that you could get to Rio. It was basically to give you the opportunity that you needed um, to be able to do it. Um, and he said, if it's not Rio, it'll be the next one. He's like, I know what you're like. And, you know, um, yeah, he, he was just really positive about it. So that did ease my mind a little bit, but obviously, yeah, it still, um, always was playing in the back of my mind about, well, what if I don't get on the team and I'm going to let him down and all this stuff. And what about all the people that have helped and blah, blah, blah. Um, but yeah, I was, you know, I was really lucky to actually find, um, this incredible horse, um, yeah, it, it was a really hard thing to find. Um, I'd been looking for a long time, but obviously I need something that um, ticks a lot of boxes. I needed a horse that was um, really quiet and sensible so that it was safe for me to ride. I needed something that had really amazing movement, um, that was talented, that was, um, you know, pretty to look at, just all these things like... Um, And I actually had done two trips overseas to Germany and Holland looking for horses over there, um, both of which were unsuccessful. And I ended up finding Zidane, which is the horse that I took to Rio. Um, He was 20 minutes from where I live on the Monitor Peninsula. Oh, there you go. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) One of those things. Yeah. Um, But, yeah, I... I got Zidane three weeks before my first qualifying event for Rio. Oh, gosh, that's tight. <laughs> yeah, so that was, you know, that was the next challenge. Like, we'd found this horse and he was incredible, but it was then, okay, are we going to have enough time to, um, you know, become a team for him to really figure out what I want, um, how I ride? Like, he'd never done any para dressage before, so um, it was all new to him, but the first ride that I had with him, it's like within the first five minutes, he was just all over it. Like he picked it up straight away, what I was asking, how I went about things. And um, he's just one of those horses that really aims to please. Like he just loves doing his job, loves loves his work and um, just really wants to figure out what it is that you want. So that, yeah, that made my job a lot easier. And it was on that first ride where I was tossing up like, oh, we've only got three weeks do I do this? Is this going to work? And I just thought, look, we're all in at this point. Like, we'll give it a go. And if it doesn't happen, it doesn't happen. But, 
you know, he was absolutely incredible. And yeah, three weeks later, we did our first qualifier and um, pulled out some amazing scores. Um, and we actually got the highest scores out of all the Australian para riders. So um, that was, you know, a really exciting must have been a boost. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah. And then, you know, same thing for our next qualifier, which was in Sydney. Um, he just did his job and yeah, we got the highest scores of all the Aussie riders. So we were then ranked first, um, after the qualifiers and the, yeah, that, you know, gave us a spot on the team for Rio. So they take the top four riders and that was it. That's huge. Huge yeah. to go from, I'm not sure, to mm. finding the right teammate Yeah, uh, to be, to being number one it and was, going, yeah, we're definitely. It was one of those things where everything sort of just fell into place and, and worked out. So I was really lucky in that way. Um, but yeah, during that time, like it was, it was full on hard work, you know, training every day, riding every day, um, keeping myself fit and all that sort of thing. But um, it was really enjoyable. I, yeah, loved it. So you got your ticket to Rio. Yeah. Tell me about the logistics of taking a horse overseas. Cause it was, yeah. I was thinking about this this morning. I'm like, like that's massive. Yeah, like it's I've, a big job. It's a massive <laughs> job. Like I, I live on the Gold Coast. I've flown down here to Melbourne just having to pack stuff to like yeah. just for this trip. It's part of me going like, does that go through extra baggage? Like, <laughs> yeah. So it's, I mean, it's a huge job, and um, it wasn't even um, us as the riders that were organising half of it. It was honestly the team um, behind the scenes that do so much of the organizing, like you've got to organize, you know, the equipment that we're allowed to take over, the gear, the how it's going to get there, the horses feed, like what's allowed in, what's not allowed in. Um, like there's so many things that you just don't even think of. It's um, huge. That they, it? yeah. Oh, and thinking this morning is like, part of you going, maybe I should have done the marathon on yeah. swimming or something a little less logistical. Yeah, something a bit easier. You yeah. just pack your swimsuit and off you go. Right. Yeah, no, it's um, a really, really big job. So the horses actually had to fly from Australia um, to Holland and we had a three-week training camp in Holland, um, which was, you know, quarantine reasons. They can't fly directly into South America, into Rio. They had to fly to Europe first and then to Rio. So um, we did our three weeks training camp with the other team members in Holland, which was a really fun time. Like it was really um, good experience, good chance to get to know like the rest of the team. And, um, you know, as I said, the people behind the scenes, like our chef to keep and our um, national high performance director and all that sort of thing. Like it was a real bonding experience, I suppose. And it was the best preparation that we could have had in the lead up to Rio. So, um, yeah, it was, it was really good. So, so you've landed in Rio, uh, horses come through quarantine, yeah. you've got everything, you're all set up day one of competition. What was mm. that like? Um, I was honestly just excited and I didn't even get that nervous. Like I thought I would be a bit more nervous than what I was, but um, I really tried sort of, you know, in the lead up um, not to overthink everything and just to look at it as another competition. We're going out there, doing our thing, doing what we always do. Um, because I think that if I had have, you know, worked it up too much, that's when my nerves would have maybe um, got the better of me. But, you know, unfortunately, our first day of competition was, um, you know, not didn't go as well as we'd hoped, you know, coming from doing all these competitions in Australia where we'd got such high scores and, you know, going into Rio, we were ranked first out of all the Australian riders. So, you know, we were feeling pretty confident about, you know, the competition and where we were going to be sitting. Um, but, uh, you know, the size of the arena and the atmosphere in that main arena was just huge and bigger than I think I had anticipated. Um, you know, it's, you imagine a dressage arena, but it was like in the middle of the MCG or something like a big stadium. And there was just heaps of people. Um, and yeah, it just, Zidane had never been in an atmosphere like that before. So he got a little bit nervous, a little bit tense. Um, and you know, we were also a little bit unlucky with, um, him tripping over a couple of times during our test, which just, you know, our score was not anywhere near what we would normally get. So coming out of that test, I was completely deflated and I was like, 
oh, you know, all this hard work we've put in and we finally get here and on this day where I want us to be performing at our absolute best, we performed worse than we ever have. Um, And it was, you know, absolutely devastating, you know. And the first day was also the team test. So that score went towards the team of like our Australian equestrian score. Um, So I felt like not only had I let myself down, I let the team down and like, oh, it was just, you know, it took me a while to... um, pull myself together after that one. How did you do that? Like, what, what, what's the um, way? Because kind of, I imagine we're, all of us are really, really good to go from a situation to criti- criticism of ourselves in yeah. 60 seconds or less, oh, right? Oh, definitely. Like we're we're yeah. our own worst enemy. So yeah. what helps you, I guess, in that um, space? You know, I think, so as I said, initially getting out of the arena and getting off Zidane, um, I was you know, a bit of a mess. I was in tears and I was just, you know, absolutely devastated. Um, And it took, uh, you know, I sort of, I took myself away from everyone for a little bit. I didn't want to go back up to the stables where the rest of the team was and where everyone was and face them. Um, So I just had a little bit of time to myself, um, you know, good couple of hours. And I think the thing that sort of pulled me out of that really negative headspace was um the team you know when I did finally get up there to see them all they were they were just like you know it happens you have bad people have bad days and they were just really like you know gave me a hug but they didn't dwell on it either like they were just that really good balance of um you know it's all right move on to the next one but um I definitely remember something that I think really had a huge impact on me and probably, you know, I realise now more than actually at the time how much of an impact it did have. Um, When I decided to go back to the stable area where everyone was, um, one of the first people that I actually ran into was um, Natasha Baker, which is, she's a British rider and she's in my grade, so the same grade as me, and she's actually the gold medalist from the Paralympics in London, from all the tests in London, and also all three of our tests in Rio, she was also the gold medalist. Um, and she's gold medalist from World Equestrian Games, and so she's... She's been around the she's tracks, been, right? yeah, yeah, she's been there, done that. So yeah. she was, um, you know, probably, obviously my biggest competition going in. Um, and she was the first person I ran into, and she was like, Emma, how did you go? And I just started crying again and I was like, oh, not good. It was just, you know, it was the worst we've done. He was really tense. It was bad. And she just gave me this pep talk that was like, as I said, at the time I was like, yeah, yeah, you're right. But it wasn't until I think even after I got back from Rio that I really realised what she said and how much of an impact it had. She was just said all the right things that I needed to hear at that time when I was in that really negative mindset. Um, And she was, you know, she said, you know, we all have bad days. She was like, did you, under the circumstance, like given the circumstances with Zidane being a little bit nervous and how it all panned out, she was like, did you ride the best test that you could and did you do the best that you feel you could have done it given how everything went? And I sort of thought about it and I was like, yeah, you know what? considering how tense he was and how out of character he was, I think I probably gave it my best go. I was like, yep, you know, I think I, I rode the best test that I could at the time. Um, and in the circumstances I, I was given, you know, and she said, well, in that case, you've got to be extremely proud of what you've done. You know, she was like, you're here representing your country, this is your first Paralympic Games, this is the biggest competition you've ever done, it's only three years after your accident and she just said all these things that was like so uplifting and I was like, yeah, you know what, you're right, I I should be proud of what I've done. Like, yeah, we might not have had our best day but we're still here and we're doing it and we gave it it our best shot. Um, And I think the other thing too was that she was like, and you know what, you've got another test where you can try again. Um, Whereas, you know, you look at some other people competing in Rio, if they bum out on their first qualifier, that's it. They've got no no other shots. Um, So I really focused on that fact that I did have another opportunity to try again. Um, And we sort of put in a, a few, thought about, I guess, a few little changes that we could maybe make before the next 
test, knowing how he had responded the first day. Um, you know, just little things like um, changing the amount of time we had in the warm-up arena and um, putting an ear bonnet on him, which is to sort of muffle some of the sound of the crowd and that sort of thing. So just a few little things we changed. Um, and we actually found out that for my grade, you're allowed to have someone walk next to your horse around the outside of the arena before you start your test. Um, so we decided to do that and I had someone walking with me going around the outside and you know just giving him a pat on the neck as we were walking around and telling him he's a good boy and uh, yeah, yeah and that sort of just kept him a bit more calm and he was a lot more relaxed so yeah our next test was heaps better you know it was much more relaxed he was much more focused on me um I still probably rode a little bit more reserved than I normally would, like just a little bit quieter. I didn't push as much, you know, so some of the work was probably less expressive than it usually is. Um, but we rode a, a safe, consistent test where there were, weren't any mistakes. Um, so our score was much, much better. And, um, you know, we came out of that test placed fifth um, and we were only 0.8% off a bronze medal. So... We were, you know, we had a competitive score and considering the improvement from the first day, it was a real sort of confidence booster to say, you know what, yeah, we, we were competitive um, as much as it was really frustrating being only 0.8% off a bronze medal. It's tight, isn't it? Yeah. That's tight, but you know, as you say, and, fifth in the world Yeah, at that. And, and sounds like that was just a, an amazing gift uh, that conversation. Yeah, um, it was again one of those things that I think, you know, you just happen to run into her as you're going into the stables, but it was one of those real game changing sort of conversations that I think, yeah, has more of an impact than than you probably realise. And um, you're right, there's probably, there's not a, you talk to a successful business person, a successful manager, a leader, or a su- successful sports person, um, every single one of them have had crappy days. Yeah. They've had their failures. They've exactly. had them. And it's almost like they smile when they hear someone else's because they go, oh, you too. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's kind of, yeah. but when you're in it, it's, it's awful. It it's, is. It's that terrible feeling, but it, you know, it's more about, I think, how you go about getting out of, uh, moving on from that, you know, like that's, you know, the biggest, the biggest thing, you know, we all do have our bad days, but it's a matter of sort of putting it behind you and focusing on the next thing. And again, for me, it was thinking about, okay, how can we maybe improve on, you know, what was such a bad day? Um, So, yeah, you know, I think that can relate to a lot of different situations and a lot of different people. And I love how you said you you don't see the real impact of that until until afterwards until you come back and kind of gone, yeah, because you're kind of in a bit of a... Uh, a different bubble. Yeah, at the time you're just sort of working through it and you're, you know, just doing what you have to do and it's, yeah, it wasn't until definitely I probably got home and thought about it and, you know, I think someone probably asked me, oh, how did you, you know, go from having such a bad day to then, you know, doing so well in your second test and that's when I sort of thought about that conversation with Natasha and thought how much of an impact it did have on probably my mindset to really pull me out of that you know, bad place. <laughs> yeah, so, yeah. yeah, and get up and, and go again, mm. as you say, having another yeah. opportunity. Um, and to then take that into the next competitive um, event or game or, you know, thing that you're going to be mm. moving moving forward in. Yeah. I'd love to dive deep into because, and you've spoken about Zidane um, and, and that teamwork, that that connection. How How powerful does that, relationship need to be um, and how important is that relationship to you as a person so there's the competitive Mm. obviously we need to connect in order to be able to deliver on what needs to be done on the day Um, but for you as a as a as an individual how how important is that relationship in your life um I mean it's it is really important and the connection that I have with Zidane now as a power rider is probably more important than the connection that I would have had with horses riding before my accident, you know. Um, Why is that? I think it's almost that, well, now obviously it's a lot more difficult for me to get the message across of what I want. So having that connection where it's, you know, sort of like we're speaking in another language, um, you know, that's really important. And so it's almost also that element of trust 
where I trust him, like I trust him completely. I always feel safe on him and I never feel, um, you know, at all like he would ever do anything wrong or, and that's a real rare thing to have with a horse. Um, like, yes, there's other horses that I've trusted before, but, you know, there's always that element that they are um, a living thing with their own mind, you know, a mind of their own, and they could, you know, do anything whenever. Well, and the reality is, like, this sport, there's a huge amount of injuries that happen in yeah. this sport. Does that ever cross your mind um, as well? Not really, to be honest, not really. You know, I, yeah, not really. <laughs> um, Sorry, I won't. No, no. <laughs> I just sort of, <laughs> yeah, I just, you know, there's, you can get into doing so many things that you've, you know, if it's something you love, you've just got to, got to do it. So, um, so the trust with Zaman yeah, is so, so key. You know, it is, it's really important. And the trust, I think, as well, that he feels for me is really important too. Like he's got to trust me to know, you know, what I want him to do and for him to feel confident in different situations and different settings and that sort of thing. So um, it is really important. And I think that connection that we have is probably something that... Um, it makes it a little bit more special and I guess has adds that little bit of extra meaning to it for me, you know, um, maybe gives me that little bit of extra motivation to want to get up and do it and train and all that sort of thing. So, um, yeah. We were talking before around, uh, because Zidane's been in quarantine, so mm. actually hasn't come back yeah. from from since Rio yet. Yeah. Um, and your words you kind of described as is a part of me is not, not yeah, here at the moment. It's very weird. I mean, you know, he's still on the other side of the world in quarantine over in Germany. Um, and, yeah, as I said to you earlier, like before Rio, you know, before we even went to this training camp in Holland or before Rio, we were still training every day. Like I was with him every day. And then it was just that more intense level in Holland and Rio. I was with him all day, every day. Like it was that sort of, um, amount of time. And then to come home from doing such a huge thing together, there'd been such a big build up to this games and then to come home and him not be here. It was that really weird feeling of like, yeah, something's just, there's something missing. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, yeah, it's been pretty hard. Like, the time's actually gone really slowly too, you know. Like, I got back from Rio, oh, I don't know, I think it must have been the start of October. Um, but, yeah, it sort of just feels like it's such an eternity. Yeah. yeah, but he gets back um, in the middle of December. He'll be out of quarantine, so before Christmas, which will be nice. Nice. Yeah, yeah. so I'm really yeah. looking forward to having him back and... Back into training. Yeah, and... getting back into it and, yeah, yeah, looking forward to, you know, looking at the next thing. And... The connection with horses, I mean, there's a huge amount of research just around um, equine therapy and, um, you know, the for, for anyone, that connection to kind of mental health in our space, how important has that been in your, I guess, recovery and in, I guess, moving forward? It's It's been huge, you know, um, particularly in the early days, like, you know, that six-month mark where I had my first ride and then was, you know... I was probably only riding once a month for the first few months. So, um, you know, and then it was once a week and then a couple of times a week. So it was a gradual build up, but it, it honestly really gave me something to look forward to and something to focus on. Um, and it kept me positive. So I think without that, you know, my mindset probably wouldn't have been where it was. Um, you know, as I said, adjusting to such a huge life change was was really hard um and again I think it would be made even more difficult without having something like that positiveness to focus on like um and yeah I think now more than ever I really do think that that it yeah that equine sort of therapy like I I just get it now you know like I you know, having something to work towards. And then when you have achieved something or, you know, it's something little, like you might be, it might've been, you know, a few months after I'd started riding and I'd done something new that I hadn't done since I'd started riding again. And it just gives you that little sense of achievement and that lift and, 
you know, makes you feel good. So again, that's then something that you want to do again because it makes you feel good. Um, so yeah, I think it was hugely important in, um, getting my life back on track and, um, yeah, rebuilding my life as such, I suppose, you know, I had to, um, learn a whole new, new way of living and yeah, that, made a made it easier <laughs> so it's been I mean such a phenomenal story as you say from that from that accident and then yeah rebuilding but also refining and um, redefining like who you are and what you're contributing and and where you're kind of going to from here I want to ask you about another um, close relationship that um, now helps you with your mobility and that's your connection with your chair um, so often people that, that have had injuries they'll they'll talk about it their relationship with um, you know, whether it's amputees, whether it's a relationship with their leg or with a walking stick or, you know, people now taking wheelchairs. What's that like? Is it just a, a form of mobility to get from here to there? Is it, is it an extension of you? Yeah, is it... I know. It, yeah, it does sound weird, but it probably is, you know, it's an extension of me in that now it just feels normal, um, you know, whereas in the early days it was this really foreign thing and you're sort of learning how to use the chair and, you know, feeling weird wherever you're going. It would just be a bit weird, whereas now it's literally just like, yeah, it's, it's, a part, it's, yeah, part, of it's part of me. And even when I, you know, if I jump out of my chair onto the couch or like I can get onto the floor, do some stretches or whatever it is I'm doing, um, it's it's still just so normal to then just jump back into it, you know? I don't know if that makes sense, but, um, yeah, it is, it's a, a, an extension of me. And, you know, even, like, if I'm maybe sitting on the couch at home or something and um, someone has a seat and they sit in my chair, it's sort of, like, I don't mind, it's fine, but it's still, it just is a bit weird. Like, you that's sort of look fine. at it. Yeah, <laughs> you look at it and you're like, hang on, this is a bit weird. <laughs> Like sitting on my lap. Yeah, <laughs> it's a bit weird. So yeah. yeah, as I said, I don't have a problem with it, but it just you know, yeah, you kind of go, hmm. Yeah, sense <laughs> of ownership. Yeah, that. yeah. So it's funny, um, and you know, like I'm getting um, scripted for a new wheelchair at the moment. Um, I've been in this one since my accident, so. Um, it's had been knocked around a bit and I'm getting uh, fitted for a new one. But um, I was saying to mum the other day, like, oh, it's going to be really weird getting into a new chair that we like we've changed a few little things. I'm like, it's going to feel really different. Yeah. Like, yeah, imagine I'm going like to have to really, yeah, I'm really going to have to adjust. Right. And yeah, yeah how so it turns and mm, how, it, yeah, imagine yeah, all, all that. that sort of thing. So, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so you've um, you've got a number of things on your horizon. Obviously, the competitive nature is going to continue to keep coming through with Worlds um, and and then moving towards your aspiration around Tokyo. Yep. Um, and getting back into that space. What, yeah. What are, what are some of those goals that you have ahead of you? Yeah, so, I mean, Zadan gets back in the middle of December um, and then I'll, as I said, start training again. So, um, you know, we've got our first competition in January at Bonio Park, which is on the Mornington Peninsula. So, um, and from there, we'll just keep um, doing our competitions around here and then aim towards qualification for the World Equestrian Games, which is in 2018, and that's in America. Uh, and then, yeah, from there, that'll sort of be a stepping stone towards um, Tokyo in 2020. So um, that's the next big goal, and I'll keep working towards that until then. Um, and yeah, you know, I'm doing some public speaking at the minute and I'm really enjoying that. So I want to keep keep doing that through, you know, as, as I'm training as well. Um, keep me busy. <laughs> hugely busy, hugely busy. <laughs> yeah. In terms of, I mean, these are massive, big, bold goals that you, you're chasing after. And you've spoken a number of times throughout um, our chat just around how important those people around you and how they have an impact on supporting you. Um my question is, how important is it to have that tribe behind you and how important it is for you to have that own confidence in yourself? So, so when are those moments where you lean on other people, where, you kind of, where mm -hmm. we have our own doubts, fears, uncertainty, and how much of, of living boldly and kind of stepping up and going, yes, I want to do this, comes back to having that sense of, of purpose within yourself and then other people follow behind you? Um, look, I think that 
the support you can get from other people is really important um, to give you that sense of um, motivation or importance, I guess. Um, or for me, it was anyway, you know, like I know that the support I got um, from my friends and family, particularly in the early days when I was in hospital, um, you know, their support really kept me looking forward and kept me staying positive, you know. Um, so their help during that time was phenomenal and um, really, really important. <laughs> I can't sort of stress that enough. But, you know, then again, it comes back to you you setting your own goals. Um, and for me, that was a, also a big step in um, keeping myself looking forward to the future and staying positive. You know, I would set small goals. So um, in the early days when I was in hospital, you know, my biggest goal that kept me motivated was to get out of hospital, you know, um, that was what I, like, I hated being in hospital and I just wanted to go home. So I figured that the best way to get out of hospital was to just do everything that the nurses suggested, you know, go to all my physio sessions, go to all my occupational therapy sessions and see the psychologist and, you know, like whatever it is that they put out there, that would, I would just do it, you know, and, Initially, when I was admitted to hospital, it was in April of 2013, and they um, thought that I would be discharged around Christmas time, so December. And I was actually discharged in July, so, you know, four or five months earlier than they actually originally predicted. And again, I think that was about setting those goals for myself of wanting to get home and pushing myself to, to achieve that goal. Um, so, yeah, for me, that that's a big... Uh, motivator, setting those little goals, you know, and then it was my goal of getting back in the saddle, getting back to riding. And then once I figured that that was a doable thing, it was getting to Rio and making Rio happen. So, you know, it's about keeping yourself looking towards something to, you know, something to keep you motivated and um, wanting to achieve something for me that, that gave me that drive to to want to I guess um figure out my new way my new life um and yeah that for me I guess was important in you know you talked about finding your own strength and and pushing yourself that was where that came from you know those goals but at the same time I think you know anything that you want to achieve or anything worth achieving is probably going to be difficult, um, but it's always going to be more difficult if you don't use the help that you have around you, you know. So my family and friends, if I hadn't have utilised their help, I wouldn't be where I am, you know. Same with even... Was that tough to do? Because I know a lot of people, you know, often they'll go, yeah, I'm really happy to help others, but when I have to now ask for help... For help. Um, it, was, it was probably just one of those things that unfolds and you just, you know, like, I don't know that I really had a choice at the time, you know, I was in such a vulnerable position in the early days and it was really, you know, they were there to sort of pick me up, so to speak. So, um, you know, I didn't really have to ask for that help. It was just given to me. And it's the same thing with, you know, when my friend Glenn Carter did his ride around Australia, I didn't ask him you know, oh, I really need help to get money to be able to get this horse to go to Rio. Um, I didn't have to ask for that help. He just wanted to do that for me. So, um, you know, and for him, that was probably his way of, you know, he's such a close family friend. Like he's, he's pretty much my uncle. Um, he's known me since I was born and he's known my parents since they were kids. So, um, you know, him having to deal with what had happened to me, um, I think that was his way of coping as well, you know, feeling as though he'd done something to to help. Um, so, yeah, I, I know what you mean about, um, you know, it can be difficult to, to ask for help, but it's, it's just as important to, I guess, accept that help when it's given to you voluntarily, you know. Um, people want to be a part of your big story, don't they? Yeah, well, that's, you know, if people want to be a part of your life as well, you know, like it's, it's just that give and take sort of, um, yeah, you've just got to take the help that is offered. And, um, you know, in return, I'm sure that there'll be a chance where I can help 
these people that have helped me and, yeah, just that circle of life. Yeah. <laughs> there's a song in there somewhere. <laughs> oh, awesome, awesome. I feel like there's so many other um, places I want to go, but I also, um, yeah, just think it's such a such a powerful story of, of how we kind of keep keep stepping up in that space and, and kind of, as you say, set those goals and then run bloody hard at it. Mm, <laughs> You've got yeah, plenty more goals that's it. ahead of where you're going. So the name of this, this podcast is called Standout Life. When I offer that term up to you, what does it mean to you to live a standout life? Um, I think that for me that just is sort of makes me think just live your life to the full, you know, like there's, you never know what life is going to deal you, what cards you're going to be dealt. Um, and you never know what's around the corner. So it's just a matter of, you know, enjoying your life, living it to the full. And, um, I guess making the most of all the opportunities, um, good and bad that are, that are handed your way. Um, yeah. Beautiful. We'll be cheering you on in Tokyo. Thank you so much, Emma. No worries. Thank you. If you've enjoyed today's episode, then there's every chance that you might also enjoy reading a copy of my book called Stand Out, a real world guide to get clear, find purpose and become the boss of busy. You can grab a copy by heading to my website, www.alisonhill.com.au. If you liked what you heard in this episode, I'd love it if you could take a few moments, pop over to iTunes and give this podcast a quick rating so that we can continue to share these conversations with people around the world. As always, I'm Ali Hill and this is Standout Life.